0: When I think about technology, you can really see the technology that has not got artists or creative people in it, because firstly, it's boring, and secondly, it's dangerous.
1: Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robert Pozzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artists, and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Alice Rowe. Alice is the augmented and virtual realities lead at the Atlantic Institute. She is also the founder of Her Story, a project using art and culture to engage people with women's history. She has worked at the intersection of art, technology, and social justice for leading institutions such as Magic Leap, U2, and the Gates Foundation. We talk about being an accidental technologist, the experience of meeting a digital human for the first time, how AR and VR could be used to elevate our humanity, and the role that artists play in preventing technology from becoming boring and dangerous.
2: Well, welcome, Alice. We are very happy to have you here on the show. I'm uh, really excited about it because you and I share a little DNA, I would say, uh, in that I spent uh, many years with an organization called the Atlantic Philanthropies, which uh, we will put a note in the show notes, and people should definitely check them out because it is certainly an interesting story. And they're very near and dear to my heart. So I am kind of Atlantic past. And one of Atlantic's last big bets was creating the Atlantic Institute with the Atlantic Fellows Program. And when I saw your name come up as the uh, augmented and virtual realities lead, I said, wow, that is cool because uh, I was involved in technology in old Atlantic and you are now involved in technology per se in the new Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So we're really, really happy to have you on the show.
0: Yes. Uh, Yeah, I'm delighted to be here too. That introduction was lovely because you use so much of the same language as kind of my Atlantic fellows present. I feel very welcome and at ease here. So thank you, Bill.
2: So we're going to get into your role at the Atlantic Institute and what the Atlantic Institute does and the Atlantic Fellowship. But before we do, um, the other interesting thing about you as our guests as many of our guests here on The Artist Engineer, have come from technical backgrounds and who have artistic interest pursuits and a side to them. And that was kind of our premise as we do this exploration. You actually come from an artistic background who have been kind of pulled into technology in your career. Yes. And maybe you could tell us a little of that journey with uh, a couple of your really interesting projects and experience before you ended up at Atlantic.
0: Yeah, you're right. It took me to meet you to let me know that that was a kind of inverse route of what most people do. And I kind of really love that. And there's an artist called Stephanie Dinkins, who I suggest you all look up because she's fantastic. And she talks about this idea of accidental technologists. And that's how I see myself. I, um, yeah, I was an assistant curator at Tate Modern and I ran my own project called Her Story, which used feminist art to engage people with women's history. And I really believe that um, art is this fantastic catalyst for social change and my kind of whole world is about art. And then it took me to uh, be doing a quite large project for the band U2, where I was creatively activating women's history for their world tour, taking it around the world to inspire women and people of all genders to see themselves in her story. And I met the CEO and founder of Magically, which is a spatial computing company And he wanted a feminist creative, somebody with an arts background, to come and meet this digital human that he was making called Micah. And it was that moment that he saw that their technical team needed creative guidance, particularly feminist creative guidance. And he saw in me that opportunity and that completely changed my life and my sense of what I could do in my work. Um, So yeah, I came from a creative background. I didn't leave it behind. It completely coils into everything I do in in a technical capacity but it's an absolute privilege to have done the journey that way. So, yeah, I love it. Mm.
2: That first interaction with Micah, is it Micah or Mika?
0: Micah, yeah.
2: Which is uh, the the very, so much famous or hyped uh, Magic Leap story (laughs) of their uh, uh, digital human, as you uh, said. Um, Yeah. your, Your first interactions with that persona and also later on with the team creating it, which I imagine... I have no idea anything about magic, but it's probably a very male-dominated mm-hmm. technical team. What was that like? Because I, I have to imagine that was uh, maybe not a culture shock, but, um, but maybe.
0: Yeah, potentially more of a culture shock for them than it was <laughs> for me, because I turned up with all my confidence blazing. Yeah, it was such such an interesting experience, especially to think about how art and culture can impact the creation in this instance of a digital human. But I'm more interested in kind of emerging technology and AR and VR in general as well. What's that space for creativity to kind of push it to its limits and really push it to raise humanity rather than kind of drag us down. And that was my aim with Micah, is to think about how can art and culture enable people to feel comfortable around a digital human, empowered around a digital human. And I I mean, I could go on for a long time about Michael, which maybe we will do, but I've just remembered you asked me about that first moment of meeting her. And that first moment of meeting her was quite hard from a feminist perspective, because when I met her, she looked at me, I looked at her. At that time, we were very similar in age. I've, I've aged a bit, she hasn't. We're the same race, we're the same gender. And I saw all of what she could become in a negative capacity. She could become this kind of digital assistant, this subservient female presence in our home. And I I felt from a feminist perspective, exceptionally worried about that. And that was my very first reaction. But then credit to Roni at Magic Leap for realizing at John Monos, realizing they needed a feminist creative to lead that project. And so we went to kind of really try and rupture that cycle of digital women designed to serve which in some ways with that project, I think I think we did. So that first moment of meeting was um, hard, a bit a bit upsetting almost. And then it went on to become this very exciting project thinking about how can feminism, how can art come together to forge better ways for us to relate to digital humans, particularly when they're gendered female.
1: Alison, it's very interesting. You mentioned digital assistance and kind of the default female presence, the female voice. Did you come out of that with any, Direction in terms of what, um, how we should personify these digital assistants. Should it be more neutral? Should it be uh, what? What was kind of the lesson mm. learned there in terms of bringing us forward yeah. in a better way?
0: So I fundamentally, absolutely believe that they should not be default by default gendered female. I think that the fact that we just all presume that that's the norm is, is a real problem in terms of the ways that we uh, normalize relating to women in kind of servile positions. And that I felt from a kind of gut feeling reaction. And it's linked to a history of digital, of, of women's, personas being reduced to tasks if you think about you would say elevators i'd say lift the voice in a, in a lift is always female the train station announcements if they're automated they're generally female because we can reduce them to the tasks rather than think who is that exactly statue of liberty she represents a um, an idea it's, it's no surprise that she's female if it was a man we'd be like but who actually is it so i think that's quite interesting but in terms of what i took away the really great moment was all of this was kind of on a hunch and then UNESCO wrote this fantastic report called um, I'd blush if I could which is such a good title all around these ideas and they brought out some really con- kind of concrete well-researched report fundamentally about how damaging these digital assistants are um, and so I felt quite bolstered by that report and it really strengthened the work that we were doing and how seriously people would take us when we were kind of really seriously saying don't have these gendered, servile bots and presences in your home, because think about the impact that has on your children, on yourselves, on your relationships. So the takeaway is that we need to think very carefully when we humanize systems, I would argue we shouldn't humanize systems. We should, we should, I don't think having them to be kind of androgynous or non-binary is a good, good idea either, because people are non-binary too. So I think we need to get away from the idea that we have to humanize everything. If it's a system, we relate to it as a system and we put other systems in place to allow us to normalize that procedure, in my opinion.
2: So that's maybe a good segue into your work with the Atlantic Institute and the Atlantic Fellows. And maybe you can describe Mm. for our audience a little bit about that organization and, and their mission and your role there.
0: Yes. I would love to. So the Atlantic Institute where I work connects these seven Atlantic Fellows programs and so those programs are all around the world. We're a global community of courageous leaders who are in each of their own contexts addressing systemic causes of inequity. So it's my utter privilege to be able to support these people that are working so hard and in such exceptional ways in their own context to make healthier, better societies for all of us. So I fundamentally work in service of those people. And so that means thinking about ways that augmented and virtual reality could strengthen their work, think about ways that it could bring them together whilst they're apart because we're a global community, and fundamentally thinking about how we can be more human when we're digital. Because it seems that it's the humanity of these leaders, of these thinkers, of these activists, these community kind of hearts, it's their humanity that makes them good at the work they do and enables them to affect change in the way that they do. And it's my belief that technological platforms so often dehumanize us, they strip us of what makes us human in sometimes very, very small incremental ways so we don't even notice, and this concerns me. So, I want to work out for this community of courageous, inspiring humans how can we retain our humanity whilst we're digital rather than kind of let it go by accident, really?
2: Well, that sounds like a, a, a terrific role. And I, I think I know exactly the type of people you're, you're supporting in that mission as I, I yeah. supported similar people through years. And that was uh, before VR and AR. Yeah. The Atlantic Institute, from what I recall, a big part of their role is convening the, these groups of people who work in different fields and having them learn from each other in different places. So, uh, so you're right. Technology is coming at us and can be used uh, mm-hmm. for the better or worse. Yeah. I mean, we now have social media platforms that maybe all the uh, negative consequences we didn't think out beforehand and that have uh, caused a bit of havoc in the world and are here. And now we're trying to figure out how to control them. And that often happens with technology.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: And this is the new thing coming. So, And this group is focused on inequity, social justice. Is that some of what they're looking at as well?
0: Do you know what? You're so right when you talk about the fact that we're just responding to social media. I feel like with innovation, technical innovation, we are so often just on the back foot responding, putting laws in place after the fact, letting the damage happen before we're actually responding to it. And I think that that is something that's so concerning and absolutely rife because I feel like so often we are tested upon, you know, The year that we've just had, we've just responded to it by just jumping on the platforms without thinking what they do to us as people, without thinking how they impact our relationships, our sense of self, our feelings of isolation. So I think you're completely right to flag that. In this context with augmented and virtual reality, I think the biggest issue and the thing that I'm most afraid of is setting up this distinction between real-life wonderful experiences and then a kind of lesser version that we use to appease larger groups of people. And so I was reading about this, um, about this art exhibition, and it was, the idea was to take these, inner city, um, kid, these this inner city school children in LA to the Louvre in Paris, that was the idea. And so there was this really kind of sweet video, and, and everyone put on these headsets, and they were actually just still in the school. And then you put on the headset and all of the artworks from the Louvre filled these empty frames in school. And all the children were so happy and they were saying, oh, look, we've seen the Mona Lisa or we've seen whatever. And there was this kind of real patting on the back feeling of like, we have brought culture to these school children that would never go to the Louvre. I'm really clear. I want those students to go to the real museum in Paris. It's important. They should go to the one in New York. They should go to the one in L.A. We should go to art galleries we should not give some groups of people a version of reality through augmented and virtual realities because the real thing is, is for the privileged elite. And that concerns me about the medium. That's, I think, the biggest issue. I think other big issues is data and privacy. But for me, the, the really big one, the big hitter that we've got to get right is when do we use AR and VR and for what purpose? Because if it's because we can't afford the real thing, then that becomes an issue. And so, um, yeah, I think that's the biggest risk. Mm-hmm.
2: So it's almost like it's not a substitute for real life.
0: Totally. And as well, and for me, I'm trying to make sure that I don't mince my words here, but it's about how can we use augmented and virtual reality in a way that isn't boring, because we can all exist in real life. Real life does real life quite well, I'd, I'd say but actually how can we use those sort of technologies to push it and make it better and do things that we would never be able to do in real life? We should let reality get on being reality and think about how can we make reality better through augmented and virtual realities. And I know I've said reality so many times we could get lost in this maze, but I'm thinking about where, what's the opportunity socially and creatively in this space that we can't do in real life. And that's the sweet spot from a creative perspective and from a social justice perspective, in my opinion.
2: Very good. so your background in art and uh and technology now kind of have merged and obviously you have an activist streak in you is that you know, I, I, I always tell the story of my time at Atlantic that I wasn't a born do-gooder. I just, uh, it was like, you know, really? I kind of, yeah, it was kind of
0: more it. like it osmos,
2: fell it, very accidental and then kind of karmically, you know, rubbed off on me over the years. So I, I became a better person, which was wonderful.
0: Interesting.
2: So um, how about yourself?
0: <laughs> oh, I, I want to pick at that. That's quite interesting. <laughs> you just fell into it. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this before we spoke. And I think that it's hard to know where activism starts. And I think definitely working with people that have um, activist values, like at the Atlantic Institute, the whole way that that community of people that work together is set up is to embody how we expect the fellows to to collaborate themselves. So we try to model the ways that that we would want the world to be in, in kind of an activist perspective. So it helps to be around other people. But for me, I think from an activist perspective, with her story, my projects that used art to activate women's history, I had this quite profound moment where I was researching different women from history and it had this physical bodily impact on me in terms of how I felt I could show up in the world. So before I started doing the research I was doing, I didn't realize, but I was kind of, um, I was a lesser version of who I could be. Once I started seeing women that had existed before me that had done incredible things, I took up more space, I felt taller, I felt fuller, I could speak more freely, simply because I had these kind of role models. And that sounds kind of gimmicky and silly, but it made me realize that research, that kind of social justice work, that activism, and I see all those three things in that little story, can have a profound impact on how people show up in the world effectively. And so, if that kind of worked with me from a really small perspective of like researching some women, what could happen on a bigger scale, you know, with a kind of bigger stimulus? Which is when I realized that creativity and social justice are completely linked. They don't go one without the other in my life and experience. And that kind of really gave me this fire to think there is solid, tangible change that can happen in people's bodies and in the way they relate to the world through experience. Um, And so, that's activism for me in my in my small context. Um, and I kind of have been lucky to find a home for that at the Atlantic Institute.
1: I remember an experiment in AR-VR where they allowed, if I remember correctly, people to experience life as, for example, a minority or maybe a different gender. And they came away saying, uh, because I experienced it through VR instead of just reading about it, I have a completely different mm-hmm. sense of what that means. And it had a bigger impact uh, to them. So your story about kind of doing the research, Um, I hope um, that through AR, VR, through technology, that type of experience becomes much more universal and accessible to people. Totally. And I I worry about what you said, which is a great point. If those experiences are available, how can we make them accessible to everybody and not just as a second opportunity for people who maybe couldn't see each other in real person and kind of get real experiences with, with people?
0: Yeah, yeah. You're so right. Like the VR experience that you mentioned, I, th- I think it's, it can sometimes be called like empathy training. And I really like that aspect of VR, when you're able to just kind of exist in somebody else's body. And if done well, it can really just shift perspective in a way that isn't always possible if somebody is kind of just telling you of their lived experience. It should be. As humans, we should train ourselves to believe people and to understand experiences but sometimes it just takes to be physically in a body, in space, being responded to in a certain way to really understand what it feels like and, and also not really understand. We can never really understand, but it gets us a little bit closer. And in terms of the women's history, one idea that I've never been able to do but would love to do is one of my favorite artworks that inspired her story is at the Brooklyn Museum in New York, and it's the dinner party by Judy Chicago. And you've got all these different place settings of women in history, and they're kind of sat around this table, and it's kind of like an alternative last supper. But the point is they're not sat there. It's just a ceramic place setting, a runner, and they represent the different women. And I've always thought what a cool VR experience it would be to populate the dinner party. So as you walk through it, you could see, and the women could come to life and speak to you, and you could engage with them. And it would just be such a wonderful way to augment that artwork and really bring those stories to life.
2: Interesting because there's a lot of folks on inequity here. And and so in one way we heard like we want everyone to actually go to the Louvre.
0: Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you're gonna pull me apart now, Bill.
2: And that would that would be the ideal, but maybe that will be challenging. But there's also a side of it of like, well, you know. How many kids can't even get onto a Zoom call at this point because they don't even have a yeah. computer, but we want yeah. them to have a VR headset, right? Or yeah. so there's that inequity too that's at play. Totally. And then the, the overarching piece is how do we get the the makers of these systems to focus more on like you say, empathy training, which is a beautiful idea. And right. There's been a a lack of uh, a lack of anything in this world. The two things right now are maybe some leadership and some compassion, right? So, so wouldn't that make a better society, but the incentives to create are around other types of things Mm -hmm. in these spaces, right? The, 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 the monetary incentives, the capitalistic incentives. So, so how do we get the technologists to create more of a experience for that.
0: Yeah, so I, hear, I heard your end question, and I'm also gonna loop back to a, a question that was almost twinkling at the beginning around when you talked about the kind of that dichotomy between d- do we send them to the Louvre, but they can't go to the Louvre, so they may as well wear the headset, Da da da. So for me, it's about appeasement and about the idea that if we give an experience, in AR and VR that's a substitute for a a real life experience, what we need to not allow people to do is to feel like, okay, pat myself on the back, take our foot off the accelerator of eradicating inequities. Look, we gave them this. So it's not about saying school children should not experience far away art galleries on ARVR, but It's like, we can't use that as a reason to take our foot off the accelerator. Do not use this to appease yourself and make yourself feel better. Mm-hmm. Do use it if you think it's going to enrich the curriculum a little bit. So it's just always about being critical and not just swallowing this new technology down as pure good and really being critical as you use it, as you, if you get the opportunity to test it, to trial it. And that links back to the end, ending of that question which is around what can creators do and to to create better technology that serves us all fundamentally. And so that was my big thing at Magic Leap and I've mentioned it in this interview already around how can we create technology that raises our humanity, that elevates our humanity rather than compromising it because so much of this technology does compromise our humanity and our ability to be together meaningfully. And for me, the key is about interdisciplinary involvement. And so, so often progress is centered around this idea of, is it faster? Is the fidelity better? Can we purchase it for cheaper? Can we make it smaller? These questions are like, this is what good means. For me, that's kind of beside the point. We've gotten to quite a good position with with a variety of different technologies. It's about who are the creators? Who are the creatives? Who are the activists that are in the room early enough to actually influence the development? Because so often, creative people get brought in at the very end to kind of market the thing to kind of think about how can we how can we package this up and sell it to the um, sell it to the customer and by that point it's tacky so it's like how can we actually build creative activist ideas and ways of relating into the very fabric of this sort of technology
1: that's very similar to the story about social media to to bring it back they were building it with maybe good intentions just to make the website faster or or engaging until we reach the stage now where it's addictive, actually. And and as you said, have to bring in people to kind of untangle all that um, addiction that they built by accident. Totally. So bringing people in early is very, very important.
0: Yeah. And being like honest about things, because I think we're probably quite kind, Tony, if we say they did it by accident, because (laughs) all of these social media platforms, they're Covert marketplaces, but as soon as you wake up and you've got a hundred notifications on your screen their full intention is Get you on their platform so that you can be part of their advertising bubble so that you can be liking clicking because as long as you're on there They're making money. And so I think that we need to create better Online public spaces. This is something I've been thinking about at Atlantic Institute is around how we can create flourishing online communities that enable people to come together that is not based around profit, that is not based around individual experience, but around collective experience. Like what does it mean to create an online digital space that focuses on how we as a community experience the space, not how we as a user experience the space. And all of the social media platforms, they're so focused on user experience. And that's such an interesting shift that I'd never had the opportunity to think about before I came to Atlantic Institute. It's like, okay, we're a community of people. How can a platform support a community of people? And it's just this kind of light bulb moment of like, wow, that could really change how depressed and gutted and isolated I feel on social media. So um, it's exciting
2: yeah I totally agree with you about it, not being an accident <laughs> the, the the addiction part of it and and the uh, the public space part of it I mean that's the thing that they've kind of claimed that they're just a public space, but that mm-hmm. they're not because they're not owned by the public really and, and not controlled yeah. so there's not a lot of say and control over how it yeah operates similar to a park or a library or something that is a public space.
0: Totally. And I should totally cite my sources here. I've been really inspired by a group, Civic Signals and New Public, who've just done a big event around this exact theme, which is why I'm kind of a bit pumped about it. But they they talk about the fact that with a public park in real life, you have swathes of uh, of the public using it at the same time for very different purposes. And it kind of works in seeming harmony. And that could be a great model for an online public space where we can all be together in different ways. Whereas online, we've kind of got these strange setups where we're all there together, but we're kind of just screaming into the abyss at each other. There's no guidelines around who we want to be in different, in different spaces and how we should relate to each other in those different spaces. And yeah, exactly your point, Bill. It's completely shrouded in in making money and pretending that they're not making money. Nobody makes money in a park. I mean, maybe somebody selling an ice cream, but it's not the (laughs) fundamental point of it. And we know that. Um, And so, yeah, I've been loving following the research of Civic Signals. They're a wonderful group. And and
2: ice cream in the park is pretty nice. So nothing (laughs) wrong with that. Yes.
0: (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, no.
2: So you mentioned bring creatives in and maybe that's uh, a good, pivot into our theme a little bit here, because this has been fascinating. So the, the whole reason Tony, Tony and I are friends and uh, we've been in the IT technology space for years, but never worked together, we are just friends, and then uh, wanted to collaborate on something. And one of the things we noticed were a lot of technologists have uh, a creative side, an outlet. Right? I mean, the accident of technology actually is more common than you'd think, mm-hmm. and but maybe the art part really goes away in some ways. We did hear someone call themselves an accidental artist oh, on no. one of our shows. So that exploration of that link of that that mindset, yeah. you know, the the people who who have ideas, who want to create, who want to produce, who look at the world a little differently, maybe for different reasons. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on that? Cause because that's kind of what we're fascinated and yeah. keep picking at.
0: Oh, well, I feel in good company because I feel exactly the same. I like to pick at that too. I think that a great example is so at the beginning of lockdown, we call it lockdown in England. You've got lockdown also what you've been doing Yeah,
2: We do. We do.
0: (laughs) At the beginning of lockdown, the writer, George Saunders, wrote uh, American writer, Mm -hmm. Lincoln Bardo.
2: Yes.
0: Yeah, that's the name. And he um, wrote an email to his students and he basically said, look, If we're going into lockdown, this is what you have to do as writers, artists, you have to pay close, close attention to everything that happens now, because the only way that we as a society will make sense of this bizarre time that we're all living through is if afterwards or during artists and writers process it all and make sense of it or not process it all actually just make art and make sense of it so that the public can process it. And for me, that is the role of an artist, is to make meaning. Artists are the people that make meaning out of the world that we're all negotiating and make it, I was gonna say palatable or beautiful, but it's neither of those things. It's just artists make the world somewhere that we can bear to live fundamentally. And so when I think if the role of an artist is to make meaning, when I think about technology, you can really see the technology that has not got artists or creative people in it because firstly, it's boring and secondly, it's dangerous. And so we have to have artists in a tech context to make the tech have meaning. And for me, that's that link up. And that's why I stay in the industry, because I think artists needs to be here to make meaning so the rest of us can experience kind, inspiring, empowering tech. And if we take that art thing out, it's going to be boring as anything and it's going to be somewhat dangerous, I think.
2: Mm, that's great. That's great. So you, you, you don't think there's a lot of artists in the weapons industry, I'm taking it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: Well, I hope I can get the heck no. out and have a long, hard look at this
2: stuff.
1: Terrific. I think in many ways, the, um, the hardest engineers that we know use art, from my experience, as that meeting part of their life. In technology, there's a lot of similar, similarities. Maybe programming languages and a paintbrush are just different tools but in technology a lot of it is just as you said a lot of it is just craftsmanship doing something very very well maybe that's why um, we have so many people with creative sides they're they're looking for that meeting somewhere else so it's very interesting Mm.
0: oh so that's interesting so you feel like there's a differentiation for them between art and technology rather than unifying the two and the, the, the art is the release
1: Many people describe that to us, that's the balance, the keeping those two sides very separate, uh, as an example. Some, I think, very lucky people can combine that where they're using, in, in my case, like computer programming. And mm-hmm. actually, in, in the scenario that you're describing, in our future scenario, using those tools, computer programming tools, and ha- have that aligned with yeah. their, let's say, meaning of life and like sense of purpose, those type of things. Totally. That's, that's would be a very lucky situation that I don't think exists very often now in technologists. But
0: this is why we have to put pressure on the people in power in these big technology companies, because A, is in their interest. The stuff will be better as a result. But they have to make space and training and partnership Mm -hmm. for that sort of creative fizzy energy to actually have meaning in technology. Because as long as they've got these incredible technologists who then are going home and being creative at the end of the day, it's a complete waste. And it's the, it's the people at the top that have to make strategic decisions to enable that sort of connection because it would benefit everybody, I think. I keep saying that, I think. You know I think it because <laughs> I said it. But anyway, yeah. It.
2: Yeah. It comes back to our, the bigger societal element of maybe you're remarkably creative, remarkably technological. You have them combined. You start your life out. You go in. You go down this route and then you're building product that is somewhat boring mm-hmm. and is helping sell whatever it's helping sell and so forth. And, and it becomes a little soul sucking. But in, inside yeah. you have this kind of inner artist, engineer, person who wants to create and make the world a better place and find meaning. So yeah. you then have your side outlet. You have something yeah. that actually really brings meaning in and makes you full. Right. Yeah. So, uh... I'll
0: tell you a wonderful example of the kind of accidental technologist that we're talking about is one of our senior fellows. His name is Dylan Valley, and he's a South African filmmaker. And um, he made a 360 film with, with a group called Electric South, who supported the kind of creation of this, of this 360 film. And it was called The Occupation. And he said that we have to get Black people, women, non-binary people Working in this sort of emerging tech right now, because he said the power structures aren 't yet set, he said this new technology is so new it 's emerging, we still are able to set the rules ourselves, and so it 's vital that we bring people in at the right time to to make this sort of technology fairer in the future and I was really struck by um, it was so his point was so clear and so obvious and so true. And so it's about if these power structures aren't set right now, they will be at some point soon, they might be on their way to, to going there now, but it's about getting people in at the right time to create better, fairer, more inclusive futures for everybody.
2: been a terrific conversation. What, what are you excited about? I mean, obviously you're excited in your new role and I can hear that and that's great. But just in general, what, what are you or to 2021 and what excites you ab- about what's coming? And
0: I mean, if you could let me know what's coming, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know. I think that um, it's really hard looking forward to this year and not knowing what it holds. I would love to be able to meet my new colleagues in person to actually share physical space. I don't know if that will happen. Um, I would love to be able to meet some of the fellows as well. I, I also don't know if that's going to be able to happen. And I think for me, it's around lowering my expectations and then being happy if, if it goes a little bit higher. So this year is just this big, wide open expanse of very low expectation in terms of what can happen physically in the real. Um, but I will get back to you if anything great happens. I hope it does.
2: <laughs> And uh, I think you're right about not being attached to outcomes is always a good thing. So, uh, yeah. so you can kind of uh, look forward, but, uh, but, but uh, some pa- patient acceptance of, uh, of what's coming at you. Also, you know, I heard this many years ago, this is way back, uh, that you know, the more virtual we become the m- in terms of technology, the more need we have for in-person connection and uh,
0: yeah, and I think you can kind
2: of feel that already in the world we're living in. So uh, I think that will just keep, uh, yeah. that will keep increasing. Tony, any last uh, thoughts or comments?
1: Only that, that it's been a wonderful conversation and our comments about bringing maybe your whole self to your profession or yeah. integrate yourself, I think has been very, very uh, insightful and very valuable. Brilliant.
0: Thank you so much. It's been great to chat with you both.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.